For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. This is Susan Lambert, and welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. For the third edition of our Summer Rewind series, we're reaching back to our first season to feature a conversation all about response to intervention, what it is, where it originated, what strong implementation looks like, and much, much more. Our guest is an expert on RTI, Dr. Nancy Nelson, formerly of the University of Oregon, and now Assistant Professor of Special Education at Boston University. She's also co-lead of the National Center on Improving Literacy, which we discuss in this episode. This is an important episode to revisit for the start of the school year. Nancy and I cover a lot of ground, including the importance of using data to make decisions that support students on all levels. Here's my conversation with Nancy. Nancy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, and you know, we always like to start the podcast off by asking our guests to talk about their journey into early literacy and where you, you know, where you ended up, uh, how you became interested in what you're doing now. Would you like to share a little bit of that with us? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, part of the path is linear, but part of it is is not. I um, so out of college, I was a special education teacher in the Bay Area. I taught middle school and high school uh, math, actually, so not reading related. And I knew that I wanted to get an advanced degree that I love teaching, but it's very, very demanding um, on a daily basis. And so I had interested in going back to graduate school and considered staying where I was already, which was at San Francisco State, where I got my master's degree in special education. And they had they had a joint um, PhD program with UC Berkeley that I continued that I considered pursuing in special education, but wanted to pursue a different related field, which was school psychology. And I'm from Oregon originally, so I'm one of the one of the few born and raised in Oregon. Um, <laughs> and I uh, applied to University of Oregon's PhD program in school psychology and came back then to Oregon. Uh, And coming back to graduate school, I really wanted to look at resiliency in education um, and and in students and thinking about how, what they uh, learn about resiliency, what they, the the practices or sort of, um, sort of safeguards that they have built up around them might protect them, act as protective factors as they moved through their own schooling experiences and out into the world. And, And when I came back to 
to Oregon and was enrolled at the University of Oregon, I kept finding myself sort of attracted more to the academic intervention and assessment side of things. Mm-hmm. I think based on my special education background and uh, University of Oregon has a very strong legacy in uh, reading, uh, the science of reading, um, implementation of school systems. And so even though I, my focus or sort of my niche in graduate school was a little bit more math related, I was I received a very well-rounded education in the science of reading um, and school systems, which school systems have you know been a large focus of what I've done um, in my career to date. So I've um, I, I always laugh anytime anyone asks me what my area of focus is or my area of research because it's it sounds very broad and it's basically you know the the implementation of um, response to intervention or multi-tiered systems of support in reading and mathematics instruction and assessment. So uh, I have spread the gamut, but I really got into this field with a concern for students and the recognition that education is one of the few things that students experience in life that have the ability has the ability to uh, change their trajectory. So having access to educational opportunity and being successful in education really opens doors for students and provides opportunity and access to choice. And so I wanted to make sure that my work was aligned with supporting an aim that would allow all students, regardless of their background, to have uh, the same access to those opportunities and choices. Very interesting. And I'm, I'm just wondering, with that earlier interest in the idea of resilience, if you see any of that, you know, sort of on the fringes of what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I see them as being related. And so, you know, if there's, especially when we talk about reading instruction, um, there's, there are, you know, the, the reading wars are sort of the, the history around yeah. whole language instruction versus um, systematic explicit phonics instruction. Um, I see as being a, as in, intimately linked to resiliency um, in the way that explicit systematics phonics instruction provides um, the, the code. It, you know, it, it unlocks the ability for students to engage in a host of opportunities and in doing so becomes a protective factor for those students. So I feel very strongly that students get access to uh, instruction that's delivered through the use of evidence-based practices because that's what we know works. Yeah, really important. And we've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about, um, you know, the topic of the science of reading, but mm-hmm. similarly, right, like starting early and, and strong with that instruction will will help kids. Um, I know you're also involved in the National Center for Improving Literacy. Can you share a little bit about the purpose of that organization, the work, and, and maybe your role there? Sure, yeah. So, I am a co-principal investigator on the National Center on Improving Literacy, which means that I'm part of the leadership team with the other directors of ENSEL, as we call it. Uh, so that's Hank Fien at the University of Oregon, Sarah Seiko at Research Management Corporation, or RMC, and Yaakov Pesher at Florida State University. Um, the center is particularly interesting, I think, because of its in- inception and authorization, which uh, happened through the Every Student Succeeds Act. And so it's a it's one of the few sort of special education focused centers that uh, lives kind of outside of the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitative Services, um, in particular the Office of Special Education Programs, which is who we generally work with for research and technical assistance related to special education. 
Um, so in 2016, uh, this center was actually funded for the very first time. And so we're in our fourth year of uh, implementation right now. Our overarching goal is, is very broadly focused, um, but still really targeting the needs of students with or at risk for disabilities in the area of literacy, which includes dyslexia. Uh, so we're focused on identifying um, and supporting the use of evidence-based approaches for screening, identification, instruction, and intervention for students in kindergarten through grade 12, um, with potentially some pre-K focus and some uh, college focus as well uh, around teacher training, for example. Um, really focused in the space of supporting students with or at risk for literacy-related disabilities, including dyslexia. And so within the center, um, in addition to being a co-principal investigator, I lead the professional development and technical assistance strand, which focuses on providing universal, targeted, and intensive technical assistance to a range of educator stakeholders. So that includes um, teachers, but paraprofessionals, school leaders, coaches, um, others that might be engaged in actively providing educational services to the, our target population that students with or at risk for literacy-related disabilities. Um, and that's one, so the technical, and technical assistance and professional development priority is one of five priorities that we have for the center. The first, Interesting. Yeah, the first two are focused on the content, really. So the first is uh, evidence-based evidence pro approaches for screening and identification, and the second is evidence-based approaches for instruction and intervention. And then the last three are really focused on dissemination and the ways that we get information out to the range of stakeholders that the, the National Center is intended to reach. So the third strand that's led by Sarah Seiko focuses on parents and families. The fourth strand, as I mentioned, is focused on uh, more on educators and providing support to them. And then the fifth strand is more of our sort of our universal strand, uh, universal technical assistance strand. That's really um, our website, social media, other aspects of um, information that's intended to provide access to evidence-based tools primarily. Great. Yeah. And what we'll do is we will be sure to listeners in the shipments to the website, but I know there's a, a wealth of resources and information on that site pretty comprehensively. There are, yeah. Our, our dissemination team, that, that fifth priority strand that I mentioned, has done a great job um, collating uh, existing resources that are available. We don't want to recreate the wheel in, in what we're doing. So if there are things that um, follow the science of reading or that have been demonstrated to be rooted in strong research evidence, we make those available on our website. We connect with those. And then there are some tools and resources that we've been developing ourselves that the dissemination team has been pushing out. So they, they have done a, a great job. And I do encourage people to check out that website and our Facebook and, um, and Twitter to get access to that information. Great. Yeah. Yeah. We'll link everybody to all of those so they don't have to go out and try them on their own. Great. Um, you talked a little bit um, about your work as it relates to RTI or MTS. And, you know, I, what I would love to do is for you to just give a little bit of background on RTI. Where did it come from? Why is it important? I think it's one of those topics that in education, we assume everybody knows what we're talking about when we say it. We don't all know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so. RTI really grew out of the public health model. 
uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. So this idea of providing um, increased intensity of support based on sort of patient or client need um, really took mm-hmm. root in education in the early 2000s in a couple of different ways. And so in response to intervention is um, interesting because it's been implicated on the general education side of education, but also on the special education side in two pretty important ways that I think are important to distinguish. So response to intervention was sort of the, the first terminology in the academic side of multi-tiered systems of supports with really two overarching goals. And one of those is the this idea, like the public health model, of using increasing tiers of support and assessment to determine the level of support students need within the school system. And that is, that's really a general education function, right? The, the idea that we, uh, we set up a system and designed to meet the needs of all students within our system is, um, is sort of that idea that underpins that general education side of response to intervention. And then in addition to that, or within the system, because we have these increasing tiers of support, we want to make sure that they also meet, the system is set up to meet the needs of each and every individual student also. So there are students that are getting these, you know, intensive interventions, potentially in tier three or sort of uh, in that, of that ilk um, that are designed to meet individual student needs within the system. And then another overarching goal of RTI that um, distinguishes RTI, I think, from some of the other types of multi-tiered systems of support is this notion that response to intervention has been evoked in special education law as a mechanism for uh, determining whether or not a student is eligible for special education services under the category of specific learning disability. And so those two pieces of RTI are, are, I think, are really important to consider. We sort of use multi-tiered systems of support as an overall umbrella term for uh, for systems like RTI, positive behavior intervention and supports, which also grew out of the University of Oregon, is another example of multi-tiered systems of support on the behavior side. And I, I really appreciate the field's use of MTSS as a way of trying to link some of these systems um, and system structures that are intended to do the same things to meet the needs of each student and all students, whether it be for academics or behavior or social emotional supports because those systems have been historically siloed and being able to connect them under one umbrella term, I think um, makes some critical points to educators. Um, and I'll, I can talk more about, I'll talk more about the response to intervention piece, but it sounded like you had a question too, Susan. Um, I, actually, I was gonna make a comment, but now okay. I can't even remember what it was, so that's <laughs> great. But um, it's great to distinguish MTSS though as sort of the overarching umbrella term and is that what I'm understanding you to say is, you know, MTSS is kind of the overarching term with other things that fit underneath that? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people would say that within MTSS, RTI is the academic arm and PBIS is the behavior arm. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think that is, a, it's a very good way of looking at it and sort of a general, from a general perspective. The only thing that RTI, um, where RTI is a little bit unique in that way is that there is this this structure that's set up for special edu- special education eligibility determination decisions through RTI, and there isn't really a parallel um, that I'm aware of on the behavior side for um, you know for PBIS in that kind of uh, decision making. Well, that's a really helpful sort of visual to to separate those two. I you know because I I often hear RTI MTSS sort of used similarly like uh-huh. as, as a synonym, but yeah. um, but that's really helpful distinguishing. 
Yeah. 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 That's great. I'm glad. Um, um, when we, when we talk about RTI yeah. specifically then, um, I'm curious to know about, you know, it's super helpful to hear those big ideas in RTI, but kind of curious to know about some common misconceptions within uh, RTI. Yeah. So I, I have, um, there, are, there are a few of these that come up a lot that are, because this is, you know, sort of the, the area where I, I work frequently there, um, these misconceptions are perpetuated and I, and I hear them um, frequently. So one of those is that RTI is an intervention that it's, you know, it's um, which in educational research, when we're talking about interventions or even in educational practice, interventions are relatively discreet, right? They're things that you, that they've usually been packaged in a particular way. They're intended to be delivered in a very specific way. And thinking about RTI as an intervention instead of an approach, which is really what it is, misses the fact that RTI needs to take into account the local context. And so there's there are guiding principles and there are certainly components of RTI that need to be in place for RTI as an approach to be implemented or implemented well. But if you if it's thought about as an intervention, um, you miss kind of the the contextual variables that should shape how some of those aspects or features of RTI are implemented within a setting. So for example, people ask, you know, a lot, so there's sort of a, in RTI, we have the triangle, <laughs> that's the visual <laughs> image, or yep. we have, you know, um, all students are sort of at the, at the bottom in this sort of green zone, and these are the students that are on track for meeting grade level goals. And then there are students that receive supplementary support above and beyond um, that sort of tier one universal support on the basis of uh, screening data that indicate they need those addition, that additional support. And then students that either are so far behind uh, their peers or maybe haven't responded to that supplementary support that needs something more intensive um, within that system. Um, and if we, if we don't consider um, the different ways that students get there, we miss part of the aspect of the system. So people will say, for example, um, what are, you know, how many students should be in tier one, how many should be in tier two, and how many should be in tier three, and what should we do within each of those tiers? And those, the answer to both of those questions is really contextually relevant. And so there are sort of, there are guiding principles around what we know a healthy system looks like and what a healthy system should do, which is a system where we would say roughly 80% of the students are um, on track to meet grade level goals. About 15% of students need supplementary support and about 5% need intensive support, but it doesn't always look that way. And in fact, it looks that way very rarely, unfortunately, in educational settings. And so schools have to make decisions often about how they're going to serve students in tier two and tier three, because often they have, you know, 50% of their students that need tier two or more than that in that system. And sometimes they don't have the resources to provide that level of support. And so they have to change the way that they think about their system slightly. So those the contextual relevance of RTI um, and considering it as a, an approach or thinking about it as an approach and um, focusing on implementation instead of thinking about it as an intervention is one major misconception. 
Yeah. And I often hear people talk about an inverted triangle, but it's not, Mm -hmm. it's not one way or the other. There's ranges of where that triangle lands, depending on your context. Absolutely. You might have an inverted triangle, your sort of regular healthy triangle, or you might have a square, (laughs) right? A rectangle. Right. Um, Yeah. Um, Another misconception that I hear a lot is that RTI is something that you do or don't do. And so it kind of stems from this idea that it's an intervention. It's like, it's a dichotomous variable. You know, there's not shades of gray um, when really there are, and it's more of a continuum. So there's strong implementation. There might be weaker implementation or no implementation at all on any one of the features that sort of characterize and comprise a response to intervention approach. Um, and then one last thing that I've been hearing a lot recently and that has really surprised me actually is that some there's some pockets across the country that associate response to intervention with whole language instruction um, and sort of a lack of use of data or evidence to inform uh, practice. And that surprises me so much, I think, because of um, my training in response to intervention at the University of Oregon. Um, but also just the the way that RTI is, you know, is set up and what we know about what works in education. So, you know, we know that the you know, the research is very clear that we want to focus at minimum on all five big ideas uh, of reading, um, including comprehension, vocabulary, phonics, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and that explicit systematic instruction, not whole language instruction, is really what's best for teaching students, especially those who are struggling to learn to read um, all of those skills that they need to know. Hmm. And are you surprised by that? Is that a new, is that a new misconception, do you think, or you're just uncovering that misconception? Uh, You know, it may be something that other people are are aware of or have been aware of for a while. It's a new, it's a new uncovering for me. So it's, Hmm. um, and I think that's, you know, maybe a testament to how we kind of all work in our own spaces and are less aware of what's happening on the other side. But I, um, that, yeah, that was relatively new information for me and it's something I'd certainly like to dispel. Yeah, for sure. Um, why don't we talk a little bit then about what, you know, what does a, what does a strong implementation look like? You talked about that continuum Mm -hmm. a little bit, but if I were, you know, a district leader or even a building administrator. And I was saying, you know, I really want this to be strong, but I need to know what it looks like. What would that look like? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of information on that and it's something that we could probably talk about for hours. (laughs) Um, But there, you know, there's sort of in broad strokes, there are, I I kind of, and everyone does this a little bit differently within the response to intervention world, which potentially is part of the problem of communicating it effectively to um, practitioners but there's uh, there's a focus on screening and progress monitoring or sort of the the assessment aspect of response to intervention there's a focus on instruction um, so core instruction supplementary instruction um, and intensive intervention so sort of the instructional intervention piece of things and then there's also a focus on um, in what would I, what I would call infrastructure supports, and these are probably the the least understood within RTI, but there are still there's still some consensus around these things, which includes things like leadership involvement, um, professional development and coaching, 
the use of database decision making to interpret assessment data and apply that to instruction and intervention. So all of those things really need to be in place in a systematic way in order for the RTI system to be implemented uh, well. That makes sense. It's the um, a lot of variance there. I would I would imagine at at a contextual level. So from place to place to place, there's going to be different issues with that particular element of it. That's right. Yeah, and and yeah. within across the system, you know, there are there are principles that should guide the work too. So the use of data is one of them for sure. And then and similarly, the use of evidence based practices um, across each of those sort of areas of the system. Yeah. And we've done, again, a lot of work talking about evidence-based practice as it relates to science of reading instruction in the lower grades. What I'd love to do is to segue a little bit to talk about the use of assessment and how that use of assessment fits into this model um, in ways that are supported by the research. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. Um, and you mentioned a little bit about screening um, screening instruments. So why don't we sort of start there about mm -hmm. the importance of screening to identify risk? Yeah, the, so this is another thing that I hear a lot in the, in the field um, that is a bit of a misconception, which is the notion that um, screening assessment should be sort of a be-all, end-all, comprehensive assessment to inform teachers about what their instruction should look like. And the way that screening is actually intended to be used, the way that screening instruments have been developed, for example, and the way that they're intended to be used within response to intervention systems is really around screening for risk. And so the, the idea uh, is, and the way this should be implemented in a response to intervention system is that screening should be um, brief measures that are used within school settings that, that hopefully do have some instructional relevance um, but are intended to sample skills that are um, highly predictive of where students will end up, say, at the end of a school year, as an example. So in that, by in doing that, that allows us to make very um, efficient decisions at the beginning of a school year in determining the level of support that a student will need to access in order to uh, be successful. And it doesn't mean you know, that those screeners are 100% accurate, right? There's always a little bit of error uh, in, a, in a screener. We want them to be as accurate as possible, but because our response to intervention systems aren't high stakes systems, we, mm -hmm. and because students will move flexibly across tiers of support, it's okay if the placement isn't perfect from day one of the fall of a school year, because you'll have other data sources that you'll be using between fall and winter at winter benchmark time point, for example, that allow you to move students to other tiers of support that they might need. Um, and so that I think that that piece is really critical is understanding the, the risk value. I see um, complaints in the field a lot about uh, screeners that are fluency based where uh, teachers say, well, we're not just teaching fluency. And, um, and that's absolutely true. Of course, we're not teaching just fluency, but that fluency is an indicator of overall proficiency. And that's the part that matters. And that's the reason that we measure it as a function of screening, similar to sort of letter, letter names is a good example. There's um, in some of the screening measures that are available and used in early reading, 
like uh, Dibbles or EasyCBM or AmesWeb, there's a, a measure of letter names and students' ability in the early grades, particularly kindergarten or first grade, to name letters. And it's not because we want to take data from that measure and go out and just teach students the letters until they have that down, um, because we know that that's not actually an effective practice. But letter names is highly predictive. Students' ability to recognize letter names early on in elementary school is highly predictive of their proficiency at the end of the school year and later on in their elementary school reading development. And so by assessing that early on, we have an indicator of whether or not a student is likely to meet grade level goals um, without any other support provided, essentially. So we screen those students at the beginning of the school year, place them into tiers of support, and then provide them with corresponding instruction and intervention at the intensity level that we think that student uh, needs on the basis of those screening data. And we don't just screen for letter names, obviously. We screen for other, <laughs> other things that are, um, that are also um, more instructionally relevant and, and are actually associated with the particular content students need to learn, but we're not going to, in a, in a screening paradigm, we're not going to, by definition, screen students for all of the skills that they need to learn at the end of the year. That's a different type of assessment, and that's not what screening is intended to do um, in general or within an RTI system. That, that And I want to make a connection back to what you talked about early on yeah. in the conversation, that really RTI was born out of the healthcare model. Exactly, yeah. this, uh, a, a, a related would be why I go to the doctor and have my blood pressure taken. Right. Yes. Is that I don't go for the comprehensive tests, like all of the tests that I think need to have, but that we have our blood pressure taken for one indicator of a, a, of a possible further need for tests. Is that, is that right? That's absolutely true. And that, I mean, you, you see that sort of across, um, across medicine and the way that, that medicine works also, you know, just in, in other aspects of life, right? So we drive cars and if the battery light goes on or if the engine light goes on, we'd say, oh, that's, you know, that's an indicator. You might take your car to the shop and find out that nothing is wrong, actually, that it's fine or, or maybe it just needs a tune-up, right? right? But, or maybe it's something much more severe, um, you find that out through additional diagnostic assessment when there is an indicated problem. But that screening system is built in in order to flag those potential problems so that you can do either follow-up assessment if it's it's needed or at least provide some sort of uh, universal level treatment um, or targeted treatment when and if it's necessary. Yeah, that's that's really helpful to understand the purpose of screeners. And I'm going to ask one sort of extension question on sure. that. One thing we do know is that across the country, dyslexia and and you know built into sort of the 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 state requirements are these screeners to identify risk for dyslexia. Can you talk to us about why that's actually really important? Yeah. So I, it's it's something I. Um... I mean, I, it's something that I struggled with, honestly, when I was when I was a, a teacher, be, because I worked with students with a range of disabilities, and I was, um, you know, to be perfectly honest, I was concerned that by focusing so specifically on dyslexia, we would lose sight of the needs of students with other disabilities within a system. And what I've found is actually the opposite. So. Um, and, and that kind of has a couple of different you know, facets. One is that what we see by 
emphasizing dyslexia, that for whatever reason, schools, families, um, the educational system, sort of communities at large are more able to understand why screening in general is important and screening um, for risk then can help to uh, let the system know how well it's um, functioning generally, uh, what kinds of instructional inter intervention supports should be provided for uh, students generally, uh, and then really address more comprehensively the needs of all students who are struggling, students who may end up having dyslexia, students who may have other literacy-related disabilities, but other students who are probably struggling in the system that aren't getting any supplementary support that might really only need a little bit of it in order to be back on track. Hmm. The, the other thing I see that's you know, more dyslexia-specific is that um, dys dyslexia is a pretty prevalent learning disability. So we you know, there are, there are a number of uh, children that, that struggle with it. The, the prevalency estimates range because of the way that dyslexia is, um, is identified. And so, you know, there basically there's, we're setting a, a cut score and looking at um, who falls below that cut score. And those st students who demonstrate particular skill patterns below that cut score will be identified as having dyslexia in research studies, for example. And so those prevalence estimates vary across uh, research studies. But in general, if we're, even if we're talking about 5 to 15% of the population having dyslexia, that's a pretty large swath of our school-based children who, you know, dyslexia isn't, again, it's not a black and white kind of condition. There's, it, it also exists on a continuum. And so we, there are students with mild forms of dyslexia and students with more severe forms. And those students will probably need different instructional supports within school settings. But so often those students with uh, dyslexia, particularly on the mild end, are able to get through kindergarten, first, maybe even second grade, and uh, kind of fool people into thinking that they can read because they're, you know, they've um, been able to memorize words that they're seeing or potentially the strategies that schools are teaching those students uh, for reading because they're not potentially teaching uh, phonics instruction systematically and explicitly, those students kind of get through those first uh, several years and then get into third grade and demonstrate some pretty significant difficulties uh, with reading fluently and decoding multisyllabic words, which then ends up contributing to, you know, a host of difficulties as those students are going through school. And so that early screening for dyslexia specifically is, uh, is pretty important. And I would imagine then it impacts not just multisyllabic words, but we're talking about an impact to comprehension, which shows up in the fourth grade, like NAEP scores. So it's sort of all built on each other. That's right. So if we look at the simple view of reading, um, or the simple view of reading says that uh, reading comprehension, which is the ultimate goal of reading, is the product of good decoding skills and good listening comprehension skills. Um, but when students get older, if they can't decode, the way that we look at reading comprehension is actually, you know, reading text. And so listening comprehension may be fully intact and present, but it's not going to go very far and getting students uh, who have dyslexia to comprehend text because they can't decode that text. Yeah, yeah. So these measures then, or these um, these assessment tools in terms of screening to identify this risk are really important, but how do we know 
what kind of assessment we should, we should be using for that because it seems like there's all different kinds and there's computer-based assessments. And so can you talk a little bit about effective assessment tools that might help us then to identify risk? Yeah. Um, so again, it kind of goes back to the criteria that we have built around different uh, types of assessment. And so for screening, we really, because of because we're trying to administer these to all students within the school system, um, and because we want to be able to make comparisons between kids, but also from sort of a systems level, we want to be able to take a step back and look at overall systems health or how the system is functioning, how a school might be functioning compared to another school or a district. Um, yeah. We really want these to be standardized assessments, um, and we want them to have some sort of a norm reference score that's available so we can we can see how students are falling relative to one another and relative mm -hmm. to you know, how schools are falling relative to other schools. Going back to these being administered to all kids, they have to be brief. I mean, no one has um, the time right. to administer, even in the, the sort of this nature or this time of, um, you know, modern technology, we, we don't have the time to administer really in-depth assessments to all of our kids for the purpose of screening. And so we want these assessments to be brief, standardized, norm referenced, and we want them to be indicators. Again, going back to this risk issue, we want them to be indicators of uh, and predictors of later reading outcomes. And so we, we wanna know by looking at a screening assessment, um, whether or not a student is on track or not so that we can assign appropriate levels of support. Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And I know at the University of Oregon, you've done a lot of work around Dibbles. Yeah. Um, and recently, uh, Dibbles 8, I think, has been released. Can you talk about Dibbles 8, what distinguishes it, and, and, and why it is an effective dyslexia risk indicator? Yeah, yeah. So sure. uh, Dibbles 8th edition has been recently released. It's been out for just over a year. Um, and it really is building, you know, the, its release has been built on years and years of research. So the first edition of Dibbles was released uh, in the early 2000s. Another uh, edition, Dibbles Next, was released about 10 years later, and it's been about 10 years since then. And so um, as part of being a research uh, university, but also being, um, you know, a college of education where we're very focused on practice, we want to make sure we have, we have sort of two goals and aims um, at the Center on Teaching and Learning, which is where I work, which is where Dibbles um, ha was created and is, is hosted now. Um, it, uh, Dibbles uh, is, it, it, because of the, the features of the assessment, it, it maps onto this, uh, the, what I, what I described about screening assessments and the features that, that need to be there. Um, and we are focused on making sure that that research evidence or sort of the support behind um, good, high quality screening instruments gets into the hands of practitioners. And so we're simultaneously always working on how we can make sure that the assessments and tools and interventions that we're developing through our research um, are based on the best and most current uh, research evidence available, and then also working very hard to try and scale those up to make them accessible um, and usable in, in school settings. And so some, some features that distinguish uh, Dibbles from other types of um, 
other types of even similar screening assessments, like other curriculum-based measures. Um, the, the big one, truthfully, is that the way that scores have been derived and the cut scores and the, um, the benchmark scores that are available for the assessment. And so many assessments that are used for screening in the curriculum-based field, but also more broadly, are norm reference scores. And they've been validated in that they show, you know, in some cases, they there's end of year assessment data that are being used to determine um, some risk, but that's not usually the way that the norm reference scores for those assessments have been determined. So a lot of the systems will use percentile ranks only and talk about how a student falls um, relative to students nationally or students locally based on that percentile rank. So if I'm a student at the 40th percentile, I'm um, scoring at or above only 40% of students within the system, which means I'm scoring below 60% of students, right? So I might be, you know, conceivably sort of at the bottom of what we would consider to be a grade level threshold. Um, And then we use those scores generally to to make decisions about uh, assessment and, and, and intervention for stu- or instruction and intervention for students in an RTI system. Dibbles is different than that because we still have those percentile ranks, but we're, we have okay. set particular scores based on risk thresholds for meeting an end of year goal. And so the way that Dibbles has been researched is that we're, we're actually using, and, and this, the benchmark scores that we've developed have been based on um, other criteria um, which means that the scores that we use for doubles are criterion referenced. And that's not as common with other curriculum-based measures or other screening measures, but that gives us a better indicator of risk. Um, so broadly, when we're thinking about RTI and implementation for all kids, we're, we use those um, those benchmark scores in the f- fall of a particular year And we have a a relatively high degree of certainty that a student who is scoring at benchmark, so on track for um, being on grade level at the end of the year, um, is actually going to be on on grade level at the end of the year based on the research and the studies that have been conducted. Wow. And 20 years. It doesn't seem like it's been that long. I know. and more information about, I'm, I'm assuming that um, that listeners can get more information on that at the University of Oregon. What, where's the best place for us to point? I guess I should ask it that way. Yeah, if, if people want uh, comprehensive information about Dibbles specifically, dibbles.uoregon.edu is the Dibbles website. Um, and that's a great place to go to get information. We have a customer support arm that is, um, available sort of around the clock to provide answers to questions by email or by phone, um, the, you know, the answer phones, and uh, want to make sure that everyone feels equipped to implement um, and use the data from the assessments that are being administered, which I do want to say one um, thing, and this may be a, a little out of order, um, <laughs> but another thing that I see is really being a pitfall to the way that schools implement RTI is how infrequently they use the data that they collect. Um, and so it's sort of a misunderstanding. There's, there's sort of an idea, okay, we have to collect the data, but the sort of um, forgotten notion that you're collecting data for a particular purpose, 
You should always be collecting it for a particular purpose to answer a particular question. Um, and if you're not using it, it's a waste of everybody's time. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I've seen that across the country, just in my work with schools too, is the over-reliance on the data collection and it gets swept under the rug and yeah. it's not actioned. Yeah. 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 Well, it's been a great pleasure. I know we've just skimmed the surface of multiple topics that we could probably follow up with more podcasts about, um, but uh, we'll link our listeners to those couple of resources that you've given so that they can dig in and do some more work. And as we're wrapping up, I would love to just have you think about the one or two things um, you'd like our listeners to either remember, consider, think about more as it relates to this idea of assessment and, and or intervention. Yeah. Um, so one of them we were just sort of touching on and that's, you know, it's this idea of data and the role of data in education and how critical it is that we use data in a systematic way to support uh, our implementation of, of anything. There's, um, I, I also hear a lot working with, with schools that um, there's kind of a perception that, you know, teachers know their students well enough to make decisions about whether they're on track or not. And so screening or the use of data to monitor performance aren't really that important. They're sort of, it's just peripheral. And I, you know, I agree definitely that teachers know their students and have a pretty good idea of whether or not a student is doing well or poorly, but there are data that show that, you know, research studies that have examined um, when we look at teacher judgment versus student performance, that teachers aren't actually able to accurately predict the rankings of students. And so then making decisions about who would who would and should potentially receive supplementary support, it, it's not going to line up perfectly. And so relying on data uh, addresses that issue and also allows for us to engage in a more systematic process that's part of really implementing school systems to meet the needs of all all kids to ensure that kids don't fall through the cracks, which is what has, you know, happened for decades when we don't rely on data in school systems. Yeah, that's very helpful advice. And we, um, well, I really appreciate you bringing us back to this idea of gathering the things that we can and actually using all that information for the purposes of, of really helping students in our classrooms. And I think every single educator, whether they're teacher or other role that they play within the school system, wouldn't wouldn't deny that that's what we're here to do. So exactly. thank you. you so much for your time today, Nancy. Um, it's been very instructive and helpful to highlight interventions and the use of assessment. Um, so yeah, thanks again. Thank you, Susan. Thanks so much for listening to that conversation, which we first released in February of 2020. Check out the show notes for resources from the National Center on Improving Literacy. Let us know what you thought about this episode in our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Thanks so much for listening.